You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sophia Fitzgerald. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Stay tuned to hear part three of the conversation in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Artbeat, your monthly segment where host Dr. Felice Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington City Council meeting on March 3rd, Director of Innovation Devta Kidd introduced a report on the LEAF program a two-year pilot program aimed at improving Bloomington's leaf collection. Thank you to the mayor and the council for giving us the opportunity to present the recommendations resulting from this two-year innovation effort. We're proud not only of the results from the pilot, but also the way that we engage nearly every city department, thousands of individual residents in transforming a city service to make it better for our residents, our climate, and our budget. That's in addition to dozens of community partnerships that participated as well. Special Projects Manager Michael Large gave the council an overview of the program. He told the council that they provided education and support to 22 households. Their goal was to increase citizens' ability to compost their leaves, use them as mulch, and decrease their dependence on the street vacuum. The expanded pilot program in the end had 493 households that came on board with us, uh, representative of all the council districts. In fact, many of our own, including some of you here tonight, were part of this great program. So with that, a multitude of educational components were part of this program. Taking what we learned from that small talk of 22 households, we were able to develop facts and questions brochures and pamphlets, online guides, hands-on demonstrations that were on YouTube and videos that they could access at any given time at their convenience, Um, the volunteer yard consultants that would come out and educate individuals about what composting on-site really was and how it benefited not only the environment, but the soil quality, as well as their overall involvement in their neighborhoods and areas. Kidd explained the results of the program and shared that the pilot was successful. It was recommended that the program be applied on a larger scale. This first metric was really a reality check. Was the challenge too ambitious or is it possible to use mulching and composting as our default leaf management strategy across a variety of yard sizes and configurations? The answer is yes. 91% of the respondents said they were able to mulch, compost, give away, 
or set out bags of leaves for yard waste collection and not use the vacuum collection at all. Earlier, Michael mentioned that 59% of residents in the 22 household pilot were successful in not using the vacuum service. And I gotta tell you back then, we were thrilled that more than 50% of the participants could do without the vacuum service. And we didn't know if that percent would hold up when we expanded the pilot beyond those two neighborhoods. So seeing a 32% increase when the number of respondents was more than 10 times what that pilot was gave us real confidence in expanding the strategy even more. Not only were participants able to complete the challenge, we have some evidence that the change will stick. During public comment, Bloomington resident Connor Bickle asked the council to revisit the city's noise ordinances due to loud construction waking him up in the morning. On top of that, 14th Street is currently home to the largest off-campus housing project in the history of Bloomington. This takes place 10 feet from my bedroom. Upon signing my lease, I was excited to move into my own home for the first time in a community that I love. Now, I regret almost every decision I've made for the sole basis of I can't sleep in my own house. My parents have insisted I sleep at others' houses before interviews, large exams, and when I need actual sleep. This shouldn't be the case in what I have to do to succeed in school. The construction site begins major drilling every day from 6 to 8 a.m. with the sound piercing any form of damper. I wear earplugs, headphones that cancel noise, and have white noise, yet it still pierces through. The constant large-scale noise that takes place from 6 to 8 a.m. has caused me major mood changes, lack of focus and happiness, and has directly caused my academics to drastically decline. I cannot receive quality sleep due to the constant barrage of drilling, dump trucks dumping and arriving prior to the construction beginning, and overall lack of understanding for the community that is five feet away from its site. Bloomington has strict noise ordinances that target students and current residences yet lack current fail-safes that protect the community and those who live near major areas of economic growth. One of Bloomington's major rental market segments is students. Construction currently is exempt from the most noise ordinances if it takes place typically between 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I wanna ask the council two questions. Do you wake up every day before or at 6 a.m.? And did you wake up every day prior to 8 a.m. as a 19 to 20 year old? I've come to the council for two reasons. One being I've exhausted all options and I'm afraid for my academics declining even more. And two being that this is an ongoing issue that's constantly increasing. We can see this everywhere. 14th Street, the communities surrounding Verve apartments under construction and those who have lived near the new Atlas apartments. The city needs to protect the community and ensure these projects do not affect the well-being and overall health of its population. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on March 23rd. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose continues his conversation with Emily Hamilton, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Urbanity Project at George Mason University. Rose asks our guests about a range of issues, mainly focusing on affordable housing. Stay tuned to hear part three of this ongoing series on the WFHB Local News. I believe there's also a little bit of a movement around things like healthcare to sort of 
have organizations sort of gather stakeholder input and make sure that the entities, the departments, the officials at least have to listen to them for a little bit as they're making decisions. It seems like certainly an area for growth and maybe uh, carving something new that might smooth some of these tensions. Are there any uh, trends or programs or projects going on that you think should be highlighted as good models of moving moving forward to create more affordability? Yeah, there's been a, a nationwide, well, not nationwide, there have been um, states, policymakers, and local policymakers across the country looking at uh, what's sometimes known as missing middle housing as um, an opportunity to improve housing affordability. I know policies have been debated and in some cases implemented in Bloomington that are along the lines of this missing middle effort that we've seen in, in other locations across the country. Missing middle housing, um, sometimes called gentle density, I've referred to it as, as light touch density in some cases, is generally encompasses anything that falls between a detached single family house and a bigger apartment building. So it could be a single family house with an ADU, with that garage apartment. It could be attached single family houses like townhouses or row houses. It could be duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes, various configurations of more than one unit, but less than a large apartment building. Missing middle housing has a few advantages from an affordability perspective. It allows households to each take up less land than would be required for a typical detached single family house with its own yard. And it's also less expensive to build on a per square foot basis than a big multifamily building with perhaps structured parking and elevators um, that add to the per square foot construction costs. On the other hand, what we've seen across the country is that the rules all have to be just right for missing middle housing to get built in large numbers. For example, in Bloomington, there's a requirement that in some neighborhoods, duplexes would have to go through a process of getting a conditional use permit in order to be built. And that type of permitting process adds costs and uncertainty to whether or not a project that someone has an idea for is something that can actually get built. And that type of barrier with missing middle housing tends to prevent it from getting built. Because in this case, we're talking about, say, going from one to two units with an expensive and uncertain regulatory process. If we're talking about a big apartment building, we might be talking about going from you know, a strip mall to a big apartment building. So going through an uncertain regulatory process when you're going to be building 50 or 100 apartment units might be worthwhile, might be something that developers are willing to overcome in order to build that project. But if we're talking about adding a duplex or adding an ADU, that type of regulatory process is rarely going to make sense for someone to risk their time and money on in order to get 
perhaps one additional unit built. I guess there is a range in there of what you're calling missing middle. Is there kind of an upper range of cutoff where you would still consider it something in the middle? I mean, as far as like stories or square footage or something? I think many people would cut out, cut it off at four units per lot. Personally, I like the definition of cutting it off at an elevator building because that's where we're talking about a really different model of construction and construction costs. So I would refer to, um, say, a, a three- or four-story walk-up building as missing missing middle or light touch density or gentle density based on, on that definition. Yeah, I've seen the model that uh, I think his name is Chakrabarti uh, talked about on the TEDx that uh, I sent you and you seemed a little skeptical about how he was talking about how we could house billions more people as is projected to happen by the end of the century with, I think, things within that range of uh, about four stories instead of the towers. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, uh, your skepticism about that model. Well, I like missing middle Goldilocks zone as something that's proven to be a politically feasible way to permit a little bit more infill development in U.S. cities. We've seen localities and states implementing these solutions, and in some cases, missing middle housing is a large portion of the type of, of housing that's getting built in, in some parts of the country. My skepticism from his approach was that that middle level of density can be more energy efficient than a large apartment building because it's not just the carbon that's used to build the building that we should be thinking about. It's also the living patterns of the people who are going to live in this development that creates the holistic picture of, of energy use and climate impact. Within the U.S., New York City residents have the smallest carbon footprint of anywhere in the country. And that's because many of them do live in large apartment buildings. They may take mass transit or walk to work and may not have a car at all. They may share the cost of heating or cooling their housing with everyone else who lives in their building. So my skepticism is that less density can be more climate efficient than more density based on the, the building type alone. Yeah, and I guess it can be mitigated a bit by schemes like uh, shared vehicles and parking garages for bicycles, covered bike racks, things like that. And I guess that's something that the 15-minute city idea speaks to a bit, as a lot of industry just kind of not in the country anymore, and things are more service-oriented, and office jobs can be done remotely. That seems to give a little bit in the, in, the, in that direction of lessening all the need for transportation as part of the cost of surviving. Certainly remote work can, can lessen the need for commuting for people who have the option of working remotely, but the majority of trips are not commuting trips. They're people going to the grocery store or other errands or visiting friends. So those may change, but I don't think they're going to, to go away. 
even no matter how much remote working we have. Certainly having the opportunity to do some of those errands on foot or by transit or bike is a more energy efficient way to do them than driving for all of those. Yeah, one of the uh, sort of jewels uh, that a lot of people thought was an overpriced vanity project was the Beeline Trail here in town, bike trail. And they've done a little bit of development along it. There is housing that is actually on the edge of it, kind of as a alternate transit corridor. And there was, there was another place called Bicycle Apartments where you were not allowed to own a vehicle in order to, to be there as part of the intake process. So there's there's a little bit of that going on here locally. I, I don't think they're so much, you know, requiring people not to have a vehicle, but facilitating more ways where they, they don't need one. And I, I know, I think it was out maybe in Oregon, some of the developments I've seen where they were setting up these transit lines that could be train or bus. That's a continual thing that's going every 15 minutes. And then that as a corridor for development to build along so that the commute is less of a typical commute. Have you seen any uh, examples of that, that that have kind of fulfilled, you know, the stated aims? Yeah. As we discussed, there's been a recent focus on gentle density um, within the last few years. But say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there was much more focus on what's often called transit-oriented development, where small parts of a city or region are very well served by transit. And the areas around those transit stops are places where large multifamily developments or large office buildings or just generally more intensive land use is permitted. There are a few places where transit-oriented development has been really successful. I would say one of them is Arlington County, Virginia, where I work. During the 1970s, there was an extension of the D.C.'s metro system that opened through the north part of the county. And the county policymakers redid zoning policy to permit transit-oriented development around those new stations. And it's facilitated a lot of multifamily construction. Now, Arlington's expensive, but if we compare it to other high-income coastal parts of the country, it's much more affordable than a Bay Area or a New York City or Boston or L.A., in part because Northern Virginia has been much more receptive to um, transit-oriented development and multifamily construction relative to those other regions. And from a, a, a traffic point of view, it's been a success as well. Congestion in some parts of Arlington has actually gone down over the past decades as a larger percent of the county's residents are living in places where they take metro to work or they can even walk to their office or might work from home rather than commuting by car in into their jobs.
Up next, we have Artbeat, your monthly segment where host Dr. Felice Chichek interviews artists, activists, and educators about their work. In today's segment, Dr. Chichek speaks with IU professor Beatrice Capote about her Afro-Cuban dance roots, coping with the pandemic and more. Coming up next on Artbeat. Welcome to Artbeat with Dr. Felicicek at WFHB. My guest today is Beatrice Capodi. Welcome to Artbeat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I believe that we are all equipped with artistic abilities. How did you come to dance? My family is from Cuba. In Cuba, the culture of music and dance is always alive, as well as, of course, the richness of the food. So anytime my family had gatherings on the weekends, they would teach me some of the dances. And so that was my introduction to just learning history and Cuban history and Cuban dance history. Once my mom saw that, you know, I, I was having this rhythm going and then my own individuality, then she said, oh, you know, it would be great for me to start studying other forms of dance. I started in a local dance studio, uh, which was called Amarillis in, in New Jersey. So then from there, I won a scholarship partaking in different dances, such as like modern and uh, ballet, contemporary dance. So it started really with my family. And I always say that just because that was the richness and that was the history. It's the reason why I even bring back a lot of my roots um, now in my work. So, you know, it's kind of like full circle. So you were born into it? Pretty much, you know, <laughs> probably started in my mom's belly. And now you're at Indiana University in the Hoosier land in our beloved cornfields. I was appointed to the position to teach as a professor in the contemporary dance program that's a part of the Department of Theater and Drama. Uh, this was in August of 2020. And this was, of course, during the pandemic that I got, of course, the job. So it was a bit of a transition. So I was not necessarily performing as much. I think so it was a lot of transitions for me physically, spiritually, and emotionally, I would say was a transition. Now it's still, of course, a transition because I, I am teaching. Right now I'm working on choreographing a musical in Massachusetts. Going forward, seems like things are picking up a bit. Do you have plans to perform in Bloomington that our listeners can look forward to? Yes, there is a performance as an event that's actually happening March 25th. And the event is happening from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. And at the Cook Center, I am performing a work that is enhancing and highlighting the deities in the Yoruba pantheon or the Yoruba religion. It's from Nigeria. It derives in Nigeria. And because of the Atlantic slave trade, then you have other religions in Cuba, in Brazil, and also in Haiti, that these Yoruba religions rent to all, all these countries, but then it started to change a little bit in terms of the dialect because of the Portuguese in, in Brazil, because of the Spaniards in, in Cuba, and then these religions have a different name in these different places. So in Cuba, it's called Lukumi, 
religion, but it all derives from Yoruba. And so there's dances that are specific to representing the deities. The one that the deity that I'm representing is or performing to is Elegwa in Yoruba or in Nigeria is called Elegba. And the deity has a representation, has a purpose, purpose in life. Um, and that deity represents the opening and closing of doors, the gatekeeper. The colors are red and black. The deity is also a representation of a childlike figure, kind of like a char character. So it just plays with the audience. And, you know, so I'm really working with that and embodying the deity in my dance. I also have live music uh, with uh, Joe Galvin and his students from the Jacobs School of Music. So it's going to be basically a collaboration with the music department. And then, of course, uh, with the audience, because that's one of the things that I just love about performing arts that, you know, you break that 180 or 360. You want Want to make sure that the audience is being a part of the entertainment and that way is not just a spectator watching the of course the entertainer you are approaching the viewers as collaborators yeah and i would <laughs> say that that's you know with african diaspora dances that's it's a call and response it's like i'm calling within my movement and then in hopes that the audience responds to me if let's say i do some kind of move or i do a clap and then i say clap clap then of course there's that interaction and this dance that you're describing would you say this is a traditional religious dance or this is your homage to it and your interpretation among other things it's both it's homage to of course the dances that consecrate the deity so they are very very specific very specific in terms of the the deity that that the movements are it represents the movements and it's very much uh, connected to the deity and then at the same time is also me paying you know respect and homage and all of that to of course the pantheon to the Europa pantheons and you know because you're thinking about these deities as kind of like avatars kind of like in the uh, Greek religion so you have your your different gods and they're representation. It's the same thing, just of course, with the Yoruba, you have these specific names that of course represent different symbols and, and different important things in, that help us in life and help us as human beings. Seems very timely with pandemic, especially. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which makes me curious, even though you didn't dance with others uh, on a stage, but since art kind of saved all our collective sanity during this pandemic, did you mm -hmm. dance to yourself at home? How did you cope with the pandemic and being isolated? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that I still did move. I started when the pandemic happened and uh, teaching and everything just kind of came to a pause. And I engaged in these like Facebook lives and I started to just invite the public and all of my friends, family, and people that I may be friends with that I haven't spoken to in a long time. And I just invited them to breathing exercises, to just moving their body in their comfort of their home. There's a lot of people that just kind of took the, their time to just kind of like decompress and even try to figure out what was going on. And I actually did the opposite. I actually was very proactive and just said, you know what, I kind of want to do something. I can't just stay still. So I, I was doing Facebook lives and also Instagram live, just sharing the 
um, my art and just sharing anything that I felt at the moment or felt that morning. I thought that it was also a great time to give myself the agency to also rest. I think that we, of course, as just individuals in, in this society, we're always thinking about going, going, going and just reaching to the top. And if we're stopping, like there's something going, something wrong with you if you stop, right? But if you keep on going, equates to success. But if you just stop and just kind of really think about and really reflect on everything that you have just gained and just give your time to just rest and give your time to dream, you actually can see the perspective. A lot of people feel as though performance has to be on a stage and performance or just movement in general could just be outside. I was just doing movements outside and recorded myself and shared it. So there was always things that were moving and even the whole Black Lives Matter movement like that, that is a movement within itself. That is dance, that is performance because it is, is part of social activism. And that's what dance is or just movement is or being an art, you know, artist is expressing your voice, whether if it's through the physical, through the voice. So you never really stopped moving. So not really no yeah. but at the same time it's like we're always moving right we, when we wake up we brush our teeth all of those things are movement so we never really it's it's really the cycle of, of life so dance continues professor beatrice capodi has been my guest today you can see her perform at the cook center on march 25th thank you for being my guest today thank you thank you so much You have been listening to Artbeat with Dr. Felice Cicek on WFHB. Tune in on Tuesdays on WFHB after 7.15 in the morning and again during the daily local news at 5 p.m. Or you can listen online at wfhb.org. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.